0: I mean, I think about Rousseau, right, um, emphasizing the value and importance of the individual human being. From there, we trace forward to, you know, a person having inalienable rights. But again, I mean, this is the sort of cerebral end of it. There's also just the sort of brass and steam and wood and, you know, repeatable fussy little brass things that then let, me, let you make clocks.
1: Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Vlog Radio. That was Lewis Colburn speaking. Colburn just had a one-man show in October at Napoleon Gallery. Colburn builds beautifully crafted sculptural objects and scenarios that suggest history, but the stories are slippery and a little mysterious. He also performs in some of the sculptural installations. He has been in Philadelphia for just four and a half years, but he has shown a commissioned work at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts exhibit here. He also works as sculpture shop supervisor at University of the Arts, where he also curates Hamilton Hall Public Art Initiative. Do you still do that? Yes, I do. Uh, So can you tell us a little about the Noble Amateur, your solo show at Napoleon Gallery? Sure. And what is a Noble Amateur?
0: (laughs) Well, the title for the show came out of sort of a particular period in i would say the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century when science was sort of the purview of i guess i would say the nobility right people sort of dilettantes people who had the time and money to pursue these sort of esoteric interests but nobody really identified themselves as a sort of scientist per se they were they were amateurs i think it ties into my philosophy of making, because I'm always teaching myself to do sort of new processes in order to make my work, so I'm sort of always an amateur. I don't really think that I'm a professional, you know, tailor or a woodworker or a mold maker or any of these things. It's sort of learning again and learning new processes.
2: So maybe for people that haven't seen the show, you mm-hmm. could just describe a little bit about it, what it was. It was in a very small gallery. Right.
0: Napoleon Gallery, if you haven't been there, is it's named because it's small, but... Has large ambitions. Um, <laughs> it's it's one of the smallest spaces in the uh, the Rollins Building at 319 North 11th, and the space is about 10 feet wide and 20 feet deep. So it's sort of like imagine a subway car almost. It's 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 a great space, but it's challenging in some ways. And I had um, I had three sculptural works in the show. One of them was sort of like a little tableau almost. I, I thought about it as being sort of backstage at a reenactment. Right there's a sort of half scale wall made out of plaster and lath hung on the wall and a little shelf um, a series of half scale um, like shipping pallets like you'd you know ship a you know some heavy object on and then these little um, carefully tailored uh, 18th century garments like a men's frock a frock coat and breeches and vest um, on the opposite wall there was this sort of it's like a storage loft but it's also built at half scale it's kind of like you'd find in a theater Um, where they have lots of props and things that are sort of too good to throw away but aren't immediately useful. Um, And that loft was full of unfinished sculptures that had accumulated in my studio. The reason I picked many of them is that they were already made at half scale. So there was a half scale door that never got completed. There was this plaster form for a half scale, 55 gallon oil drum that never got completed. A small brick wall made out of miniature bricks. Some of them were life sized There were some cast aluminum vegetables, like squashes, that were part of the, the piece. And that sort of dovetails into the, the final work in the show. This sort of aluminum tapered tower with um, a pair of very patched and distressed overalls suspended off to the side. And then at the bottom of the tower, there's a pile of life-size cast plastic pumpkins. So there's about seven of these things on top of a trap door in the bottom of the tower. It's kind of hard to paint a picture of these things, I guess. Uh, no, know, was. that was
1: pretty vivid. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I can be there. Yes, I, I get a sense of paranoia from it. Can you talk <laughs> about that a little?
0: Yeah, that one. I mean, I'm I'm originally from Iowa. I grew up in Iowa and Minnesota. So, um, I mean, I love that part of the country. It's it's where I'm from. Um, I'm really glad that you said paranoia. Is that the sort of the dark side of self sufficiency is is paranoia? You know, if you're going to sort of be an independent person and take care of everything yourself, then I feel like that often leads into spending all this time worrying about whether you actually can be self-sufficient. That sort of comes from that experience of growing up there, I guess.
2: So let's talk a little bit about history. Mm-hmm. You, you, That piece, or those pieces, that mm-hmm. show was full of references to Enlightenment mm-hmm. ideas, as you described, mm-hmm. and the noble amateur. So do you do a lot of work that's referencing history? And what's yes. your interest in history?
0: Yeah. Um, partly, it's just the visual language and the, the satisfaction of, of making things using these um, antiquated processes. The materiality of those objects I find so much more satisfying than the materiality of many objects today, right? I mean, they're, they're made with actual, you know, wood and metal and it's it's sort of thick and durable and, and there's a human, you can tell that a human has put care into making these things. On an intellectual level, I'm interested in how we sort of retell history, right? I don't really believe I don't have a great interest in sort of knowing any sort of objective given fact. I think, you know, it's hard to sort of think about that stuff as, you know, one empirical set of knowledge now. But I'm interested in reenactment, right? How we retell things. Because the way the stories change when we retell them. I think that tells us much more about what we care about now than anything that may have happened sort of objectively in the past, right? The veneer of history fascinates me, in particular when you go to, say, something on Independence Mall and they have interpreters, you know, and you see what are the details they pay attention to and what are the details that aren't either aren't pertinent to the story to their telling. I see people sometimes walking around in these, like, This is an odd example, but really thin and flimsy-looking frock coats that look like they're made out of polyester or something. It's fascinating. It also drives me crazy a little bit. But I like those little sort of slips and elisions.
1: Do you have a favorite period?
0: Hmm. My, My interest in graduate school was kind of largely on the Victorian era. But now that I've come to Philadelphia, there's so much more... The history that gets highlighted here is that of the Revolutionary period. I see more of those little slippages that interest me in that period. But I think, you know, broadly that sort of enlightenment forward to maybe the beginning of the 20th century, we can still sort of feel some connection to because the intellectual movements of that time period sort of laid the groundwork for
1: where we are now. You know, can you give some examples of that?
0: For example, I mean, I think about Rousseau, right, um, emphasizing the value and importance of the individual human being threads across the whole enlightenment and then from there we trace forward to you know a person having inalienable rights but again I mean this is the sort of cerebral end of it there's also just the sort of brass and steam and wood and and leather thing that like the materiality of objects from that time period machining processes so you can make you know repeatable fussy little brass things that then let me let you make clocks and then that lets you you know know where you are when you're exploring the world because with that reliable timepiece at sea you can't figure out your longitude but you know all these little things kind of snowball
1: but you also seem to know how things are constructed mm-hmm. I you know I get the feeling when I look at your wooden stuff that mm-hmm. you know it can support something
0: that's kind of come from a lot of different places um, I, I spent some time after undergrad working for an architect um, and then I built theater sets as an assistantship in grad school and that was great because it, it taught me how to make big things very cheap and very fast you know it's not it's not making pianos or furniture it's you know how can I make a fake room for as little money as possible and as quickly as possible? Um, So that was a really, really valuable education.
2: So where was that? What theater company or whatever was that? Right.
0: Um, I went to graduate school up at Syracuse University, and uh, the Syracuse Stage is a professional theater, but it's housed in the same building as the student theater. So uh, we built sets for both venues at the same time.
1: So how'd you get to Philadelphia?
0: (laughs) The best way to say is that I just jumped off. Um, (laughs) Well, so I... um, I met my, not then, but now, wife um, in graduate school at Syracuse, she was also in the sculpture program. We had some friends who'd already moved to Philadelphia. We sort of had a conversation where we didn't have any jobs or anything lined up after grad school. Uh, We knew we wanted to have a studio. We knew that that, a studio of the scale that we wanted would not be feasible in New York. So we just sort of put everything we had in a couple of U-Hauls and moved to Philly and uh, moved to the, the Kensington neighborhood I've had a studio in Viking Mill for about the last, I guess, yeah, four years now.
2: Wow. So l- shall we talk yeah. about Viking <laughs> Mills? You threw it out there. I know, I
0: did. Um, I think it's, it's been since October 21st that we've been closed out of the space. They Can do... you give
2: just a little background yeah. for people?
0: Right. So Viking Mill is a very large sort of series of, stu- of buildings that are occupied by artist studios and metal workshop and a big sort of vintage clothing store and recording artists, a whole variety of people. But the city has been sort of paying more attention to um, code issues in these big studio buildings uh, simply because of obviously the the building collapse on Market Street. And then also there've been a couple large scale warehouse fires up in the Kensington neighborhood. Viking Mill, I think, was was built out into studios by artists without a lot of oversight. I know that they are actively trying to fix all these things and they, they do intend to get people back in there. Presently, our whole studio is sort of uh, inaccessible to us, but we haven't really, my wife and I share a studio, but we haven't pulled anything out of there because we have have a full wood shop and we have a storage unit full of huge sculptures and stuff. So there's just no, like without several months of care and thought and effort, there'd be no way to remove all our material from there, nor do we want to because it's very close to our house. So we're sort of sitting on our hands at this moment and they did open up one of the small buildings already. So like, it's not like a geological process. Things are moving.
2: Yeah, I heard that Little Berlin is now open. Is yeah. that right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're in the one-story building. So the one-story building was reopened last week, which is great. The five-story building is a more complicated um, endeavor to get reopened. You know, I'm getting antsy. I want to get back to work.
2: I was going to say, both of you, you and your mm-hmm. wife, what's her name, by the way? Uh,
0: Stephanie Koenig. She's she's showing around here a little bit, too.
2: Mm-hmm. So let's talk just briefly about the piece that you had at the Icebox. You've, oh, you've yeah. showed at... Paffa at that mm-hmm. here show, that big show, and but you also had an interesting piece in the icebox mm-hmm. where you built a tower, another tower, right? But you performed in it. So, right. can you tell us a little bit about okay. that? And there was history in there and theater, yeah, and...
0: absolutely. Yeah, that's so that was, um, and footnotes make the world. It comes from War and Peace in Tolstoy's War and Peace. So, if you read that whole giant novel, there's about a three or four page sort of digression. Immediately after Napoleon has invaded um, Russia and the Battle of Borodino, Tolstoy goes off on this sort of tangent about the calculus of history, and he's talking about you know if we can arrive at this point where we can use calculus, of course it's sort of a new discipline at that point, to arrive at the the sum and take the derivative of every human being's individual actions, we will then be able to predict the course of history or or analyze it more thoroughly than we've ever been able to. So that piece was, you know, this probably 12-foot tall tower and I was sitting at the top of it and had a um, an old manual typewriter up there with a continuous scroll of paper typing that four-page passage over and over and over again on the manual typewriter. You know, with a manual typewriter you basically can't erase and typing on a manual typewriter is drastically different than typing on a contemporary keyboard. So It introduces all these errors and typos and glitches into this scroll of paper. And because the scroll of paper runs continuously through the typewriter, you're sort of committed to all of these errors.
1: So do you read a lot of novels? Do you read a lot of history (laughs) books? Do you look at historical movies? What's your source material? Where does it come
0: from? (laughs) Uh, All over. Um, I mostly kind of land on on a period or land on an object and then start digging from there. Um, For example, the... work I did in grad school, my thesis was this reconstruction at full scale of Napoleon Bonaparte's carriage crashed on the set of the moon. And that one strikes me as this really beautiful sort of lost object. I kind of look for these lost objects because the object existed, it was either destroyed or, you know, we don't have access to it anymore. And it's only partially recorded. So in recreating the object, I have to make all these little sort of leaps and estimates and jumps, and that's the same sort of little slippages that I'm trying to find when I'm looking for source material. They live in the back of my mind, and then when something prompts them, they pop up.
1: Do you think that your retelling of the past using art, do you think that that also adds to the slippage of, mm. of reality? Or do you think it's more a commentary on the slippage, right. a commentary on museum practice?
0: I love that you say commentary on museum practice because I'm, I'm really conscious of how the objects are presented, right? I love making all the you know shelves and cases and details. That's that's so much a part of the the grammar of the work and interrogating how these like museums make meaning by presenting objects. Um, does it contribute to the slippage? I have some skepticism about art's ability to sort of change much in general, um, but at the same time. If people see the connections, that makes me really excited. And when you know, I do have good conversations around the work. And sometimes people do say, you know, oh wow, you know, like I, I saw this guy on the on the subway in period attire, you know, and that's really fascinating. Um, so th- those things are really great. Um, it's not my goal to sort of change anyone's mind, really. Um, maybe it contributes to the slippage. If it does, that make me happy, I guess. <laughs>
2: Well, I think that was wonderful. So um, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Lewis Colburn at University of the Arts. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
2: Artblog Radio is brought to you by
1: theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.